Welcome to From the Booth, the podcast sponsored by BYU International Cinema, where we talk about the films playing at BYU's International Cinema. I'm Chip Oskerson, co-director of International Cinema. Joining me today is Jojo Hegstrom-Pratt, our sound engineer, but also sometimes guest here on the program. Thanks, Jojo, for being here. Thanks for having me. And thanks for helping us to sound good otherwise. (laughs) Um, Jojo's a film student in the TMA program here and is a longtime supporter of International Cinema. He's worked here as a projectionist and another capacities different times and seen a lot of films. So he's going to be with me uh, for the first part of the program as we talk about Jinpa, a Tibetan film directed by Pima Tseden from 2018. And then we're going to talk a little bit about War and Peace, the 1966 adaptation from Tolstoy directed by Saji Bondachuk. And then later on, we'll have some other guests to talk about Still Life, 2006 feature in Mandarin, set against the backdrop of the construction of the Three Gorges Dam project in China. And then finally, we'll talk about A Fathers and Sons, which is an intimate look at the life of an extremist Muslim family in Syria. It was in Arabic and directed by Talal Dereki from 2017. So let's start with Jimpa. This was one of those films, I think, that it leaves more questions than answers in a lot of ways. Absolutely. I had no idea what to think of it immediately following my screening of it. But I think I have some ideas now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's about a truck driver named Jinpa who finds this traveling monk on the road and brings him into his truck to drive him to his destination He's also named Jinpa. Oh, and also apparently the actor. Yeah, the actor who plays the truck driver's name is Jinpa, just to add a level of complexity. But the monk is going to commit a murder, and our truck driver doesn't stop him, doesn't prevent him from doing it. But over the course of the film, starts to, I guess, feel complicit in the uh, murder or the attempted murder. Or the murder that might be. That It's all kind of tenuous. You're not sure if it's happened, yeah, if it's going it's, to happen. Yeah, but, what's going on there. Yeah. What I thought was particularly striking and interesting here was how the film repeated scenes, but from different perspectives. We have our truck driver going into this cantina and ordering food and talking to the hostess and asking about the monk who was there the day before. And then we get that it's this long scene. It seemed like it went on for at least five or ten minutes. And then we get a repetition of the exact same scene from the same camera angles, but this time washed out and with the monk there asking about the man he's trying to kill. Yeah, yeah. these interesting repetitions and doublings over, right? Yeah, this way. Exactly. I mean, you mentioned you know the truck driver and this monk hitchhiker that he picks up. There's the sheep too, right? That the yeah. truck driver hits a sheep before he, he picks up the hitchhiker, and the sheep comes back, right, in in the form of the sheep that he buys mm-hmm. to you know to give to his lover. You get the the repetition of scenes you've you've mentioned, right, where you you kind of replay it, but from another supposedly another character's perspective, but they're seeing the same things. Yes. Uh, and you even get at the very end of the film, you end in the place that it started. So as he's leaving town, so to speak, exactly. the truck driver, um, he gets a flat right in the same spot as where he hit the sheep to mm-hmm. begin the film. And so he gets out and he repairs this. And then you lapse into a dream sequence, I guess. Yeah, um, premonition maybe. But... Something where there's this blend, complete blending together of the two. 
where the he, two characters, the two characters, where he takes the place of the hitchhiker, and and he does the killing, right? Of the the, the hitchhiker was intending to do to avenge the the death of his father, and but it's it is in the form of a dream. It's not so straightforward that we know that this has happened. Exactly, you know? and it's very strange. I don't know what to make of it other than that. I guess sort of a cautionary tale or a, or a, an, the idea that we get wrapped up in other people's stories or other people's actions by associating with them. Yeah, I don't know. That, well, and that goes with the proverb that it ends with, right? Exactly. This idea of that you, you know, I can tell you my dream and you might forget it and, you know, kind of leading up to it. But if you're involved in my dream, right, you become, <laughs> you become part, part of you, you right? Yeah. And uh, so this, you mentioned this word complicity earlier, and I think that that's a really interesting idea, especially uh, given, I mean, if we're, there's clearly a kind of a karmic thing yeah. going on here. The killing of the initial accidental killing of the sheep is, is, is what starts everything in motion. And for the longest time that he's trying to, to break the karmic cycle, right? That he, he takes the, you know, the sheep to a monastery and he wants them to say a blessing to help guide its soul. Right. He wants to make sure that he hasn't inadvertently kind of committed some act that's going to condemn him or the sheep in some, in some kind of way. And I wonder if one way that you can think about this interest in karma and, and complicity is by projecting this out a little bit onto the the world, the kind of the globalized world that provides Tibetan cinema for us here in, in Provo, mm. right, are the very same networks that also make it possible for me and my actions to have these inadvertent consequences elsewhere in the world, right? right. Uh, whether we're talking about things like climate change or, you know, different kinds of supply chains, you know, that I, you know, the chocolate that I like to, exactly. to eat, yeah. I find out, you know, is being harvested by child labor and, you know, and in sub-Saharan Africa or something like this. These are all inadvertent. I'm not trying to go out and to, to be malicious in, in any kind of way, but I share a kind of complicity for the way the world looks, even though I haven't intended it. Right. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I think you've covered it. <laughs> well, what do you think about the, the visuals, the, the, the kind of the formal language that the film is using? It seems to, to be really striking. Yeah, it's very interesting because... A lot of the outdoor scenes are washed out and desaturated. There's not a lot of color, but it's very, very bright, almost oppressively so. Yeah. And then uh, the inside shots are almost always dark, and there's more color. There's more striking color. There's some reds, except for the last location where he's visiting the the man who the hitchhiker is trying to kill, he visits his store and there's some natural lighting coming in from the outside. It's very striking and very dreamlike. It's almost surreal. Yeah, surreal is the word, isn't it? Yeah. Right? That there's this kind of, uh, you don't know where you are. I mean, you know you're in Tibet somewhere, but it, it's Yeah, there's no real concrete of sense of place yeah. or, or, or time even, really. Right. But not an exoticization of it. It's not no, an orientalization. No, not and this all. is one of the powers, I think, of the fact that the filmmaker himself is Tibetan, uh, that he can do this in a way that if Hollywood was to go right. and film in Tibet, they, they can't help you know, but make it other in, in yeah, some exactly. kind of way. There's no distinction between you know, the sky and the earth, mm -hmm. right? That the horizon just kind of yeah, fades in. out and leads, you know, lends to this kind of uh, dreamlike state. 
Well, if we were to switch gears a little bit and move to you know other dreamlike states, if we could could say that is uh, how about war and peace? We're in our second episode so far. Uh, this one focusing a little bit more on Natasha Rostova, whereas the first one is a little bit more a man's world. I think you could say this mm-hmm. one is more female world. Yeah, would that be fair? I think so. It's very interesting to me how formally the battle scenes and the ballroom scenes are given the same sense of cinematic weight. It's very big. It's important. It has the same level of importance. And it's choreographed. I mean, literally choreographed both of them, right? Yeah, and you get these beautiful performances, dancing. Maybe it's kind of a juxtaposition between these sorts of more masculine world and a more feminine world, perhaps. But I thought that was interesting that, that it had that same level of artistry and care behind it, interest in the subject matter. And there was a lot of really interesting edits, I think, too, cuts in those ballroom scenes where they would put like a fan, someone's fan, in right. front of the camera, and then it would cut on the motion to a new space, and it was disorienting and kind of a romantic fun you're swept off your feet kind of way it, it kind of lends an immediacy too i was thinking i mean it's almost like you're moving in and in between yeah. people to you know to catch the views that that you're seeing i mean it's rather remarkable i was watching a making of you know mm-hmm. a film about this production and the the kinds of innovations required for the ballroom scenes were no less creative than what they were doing out on the yeah. in the battlefield scenes and that they, the, the cinematographer, you know, he's rolling around on roller skates oh, really? you know, for, for big parts of this to get this kind of really fluid, mobile, yeah. you know, kind of view. And there's someone that's literally putting the fan mm-hmm. up. I mean, this is all done in the camera, right? Yeah. That you know, kind of putting the, the, the fans and the scarves, you know, kind of flashing oh, them amazing. up. And like, there's someone handing them different ones. So it's not the same one coming up all the time. <laughs> and then getting the right uh, actors and actresses in front of the camera at the right moment. Is, is quite a feat in mm-hmm. doing all of this. I mean, it's combined with some interesting crane shots and, and whatnot, but they're ducking underneath the camera. They're needing to pop up right somewhere else, when, right when the camera comes there. It was a really uh, tricky, and then all of this, they needed to synchronize with music yeah, as well. Exactly. So it's um, technically, I mean, you're absolutely right that there's there's so much care that's given this that's you know no less than, than the kinds of things going on these really epic battle scenes that I think are, are also, you know, one of the hallmarks of the movies. Uh, and, and there's even a, a kind of balletic poetry mm-hmm. to, to both of them. They're reminiscent oh, of each yeah. other, the, the movement um, that, uh, that I think you'll see in the, especially some of the latter episodes really emphasize this Absolutely. in interesting ways. I was also struck by the use of split screen in this part where there were certain scenes where I think as Pierre was talking to Andre and Natasha to her mother, maybe where it collapsed. You know, it was it was it had the split screen, not perfectly down the middle, but it had it had this interesting kind of play of composition where like a third of the screen was one scene and two thirds was another, and there was this conversation back and forth. They're talking about their love for the other person and it was timed 
in such a way that the dialogue had realistic pauses, but it was also long enough for the other conversation yeah. to happen. I thought that was really interesting. It seemed very theatrical, too, like something you would do in a play where you would have two spaces on stage at the same time and they're having two separate conversations. But I don't think I, I've seen it in quite the same way in film before. Yeah. I thought that was really neat. He, he has so many interesting formal innovations. Of course, a lot of them don't survive into mm -hmm. our, our current day. But that's I'm I'm constantly surprised by how new and fresh oh, the vision is, you know, yeah. that he that and that he uses these to adapt something as classic as War and Peace. Mm -hmm. there, there's a way in which there's a temptation maybe to you make know, it kind of dry. Make it dry <laughs> because the work is somehow supposed to stand on its own and that you don't fall back and make use of those things. I don't um, I don't think it's I, yeah, I don't I don't think it's to the works detriment at all like i think it only enhances it and makes it exciting when we have an adaptation like this i get kind of scared where it's like oh man war and peace do i really want to <laughs> watch a seven hour version of that yeah. mm, i don't know but then you watch it and it's just the cinematic quality not to say that tolstoy isn't important isn't good but it relies on not only the source material to prop it up, but fantastic filmmaking yeah. to to elevate it. Right. Well, and it's interesting to think that you know the commitment of watching a you know seven plus hour film is not that different than what we do so often yeah, with our serialized binge watch something. Yeah. So it I is. think it's a different. It's it's interesting because War and Peace, this adaptation especially, feels more like a miniseries mm -hmm. than it does a seven-hour film that you're supposed to watch. Yeah, I think all it's meant one. to be serialized. I think, a yeah, bit. especially because you have those. As was know, the original novel, yeah. you know, we should say, right? right? That that too was was serialized and not intended in some ways as a you know sit down right, and read. Right, thing. you have the you know end of part or end of film one, end of film two. You know, this is the end. You should take a break now. Whereas some some other long adaptations might not be that way. As well as now, like with this. It is serialized, and I do want to come and watch the next part, but I don't feel like I need to binge watch it, in a in a way, yeah. because maybe because it's classier. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but it's it it. I think there's a way that television now television it's not really TV anymore, mm -hmm. but serialized storytelling. Depends on cliffhangers. Yes, the way that it, this it really wants yeah. you to immediately be like, oh, I've got to get back into it. Whereas this, I'm like, man, I really want to see what new spectacular thing is going to happen next episode. Not that there isn't cliffhangers, but yeah. it's just not... It's not trying to hook you. It doesn't feel it doesn't feel manipulative. Yeah, I think I see what, what you're saying. Well, good things are, are coming up, right? That uh, Napoleon is still on a roll. Yeah, uh, he's still working his way towards Moscow, and uh, before the end of this, we've got to kick him out of Russia. So, yeah. <laughs> so stay tuned. Yeah, we'll we'll see what happens. More War and Peace coming your way. Well, thanks, Jojo, for for being here and talking yeah, to me about absolutely. these films. No problem. 
Now joining me to talk about still life, we have Professor Steve Reap from the Chinese program here. He's also the one who gave our lecture this last Wednesday. Thanks for being with us, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. I think I should probably hasten to say, too, that you are a former co-director of International Cinema, so you know <laughs> all about what being in the seat's all about. I have a little bit of a sense of that. A That's little right. bit of a sense of that. Well, get us started a little bit here on, on still life. I think that for people seeing this film, the, probably the most challenging thing is that you don't have a, a really strong narrative, right? That there's not strong action. Leading. I mean, there's, there's things that are happening, but causation is not the principal formal element of the film that we fixate on, right? Right. The film seems to be almost reactive, and I think the, the thing it's reacting to is this damming up of the Yangtze River and its broader implications, both in the environmental realm and in the human realm. That's really what the film seems to be getting at. We see a film that's really focusing on breakdown and dysfunction. One of the students who attended, I men mentioned the idea of a dystopian world, and I think that really does occur here in this movie. Um, if you compare it with other Jia Zhangke films, they have much stronger narratives. This one in specific doesn't. It's a film with several storylines, but each of them are storylines that end without any kind of determinative conclusion, oftentimes an end of falling apart, right. rather than something kind of coming together. And In Chinese cinema, you often have the great reunion, a sense of balance and restoration, less so, I guess, in art films. But that's definitely not what we're going to get. That's, yeah, that's, and it's interesting that you know, dissolving marriages is in yeah. part what this is about, right? Yeah. That it's you know, the, the strain that the, what's happening to the environment, what's happening to the physical environment around these people are, are being reflected in their own relationships. But significant, too, I think, that for both of our, our main protagonists, I, I think we call them, we right? call that, we, them that, that we follow, that we follow them through, they're outsiders coming to this place. They're That's displaced right. people themselves, That's right? right? And both of them, you know, are coming to try and, well, it really isn't clear what they're coming to do. I think they're trying to, maybe they're trying to kind of find out what happened to their own dissolution and neither of them gets a really, there's not really any resolution for either of them. Mm -hmm. The film, they kind of end up separated from the people that they'd come to find uh, and the hunts hunting them down doesn't lead to the expected solution it leads to just more heartbreak I guess right and, and this is a real I think critique of I mean not Chinese modernization per se but especially Chinese you know modernization right, right? that right. I mean the, the project that I mean in in the grand scope not just the three gorges dam but thinking about that as a stand-in for all of the projects that you know lifting China out of poverty bringing China you know to the developed world you know that that's supposed to have these you know these far-reaching benefits and certainly have had benefits in a lot of ways for people also come with a significant price. We had Jennifer Fay out here earlier in the semester, and she, she wrote something uh, in her book, and I'll, I'll read this, this quote uh, speaking to this. She says, for Xi's characters, modernization, globalization, and capitalization are not much awaited improvements one enjoys, but uneven processes one survives. No, I think that's very much true. I think of manufactured landscapes. We that's been a little while since we screened that. Yeah, the Bertinsky film. The Bertinsky film, and there's so much. I mean, they're images of just piles of waste and recyclable products and things. China's become kind of the the dumping ground for for other nations, that's uh, right. Western nations. Well, externalities uh, we refer to exactly, that in economics, in right? Economics. It's a negative externality. That's right? a negative externality. And yeah. um, and here we see. We see a twist on that. The Three Gorges Dam is really a Chinese project. It's something that the Chinese engineered from the beginning. And it was something that was supposed to 
It was first proposed by uh, Sun Yat-sen, I think, around, I don't know, 1912, but sometime very early on. Mm -hmm. And it was pursued by almost everybody, the nationalists, the Japanese occupiers, later on by the communists. And it isn't until 1990s that they go ahead and build this incredible dam. And it's interesting, I think, in Jia's film that as we watch these people and their dissolution, they are shot against this natural landscape. That's yeah. such a crucial part of this movie. And an unnatural landscape, too, oh, right? Oh, of course, the, the, of course. The wreckage and ruin That's that right. the humans have left That's behind, right. too. In the distance, yeah. in, the, in the background, we see large sweeping pans of, of the river and then set against them these buildings that are being basically yeah. toppled down and piles of rubble, people literally buried under piles of rubble. That's become of a product of this this desire to you know stop floods generate electricity which in theory is supposed to be environmentally good because it could be the alternative to other things sure. uh, other more pollutant polluting forms of energy but still the flooding the destabilization of the the landscape displacing of all these people sedimentation that builds up behind the dam there's all kinds of environmental well, extinction of yeah extinction of species, extinction of right? species. Like this. Uh, the, the, the yangtze river i think it's the freshwater dolphin there's a That's whole right. bunch of species that have uh since been declared extinct since, since they extinct, yeah. that's right that's interesting okay there's some there's some moments in this film too that really might cause people to you know to head scratch mm -hmm. one of these being there's a, a really striking scene where she's hung a, a, a tank top out to dry right. and it, against the backdrop of uh, the background there's a building in the distance yes. and this building suddenly turns into a spaceship and takes it right. off That's right, right. Uh, and there's other That's ufos right. that appear and yes. kind of that are never explained never That's right. now the building taking off i was reading and you can confirm this since i don't speak or read uh, chinese but this is an actual monument, an unfinished monument for migrants, supposedly, that, that was um, under construction. And it actually it begins to form the character Hua for people. Am I okay? Here? Is that H-U-A, Hua? Yeah, Hua, sorry. Okay. And that would be the character for China. It's literally the character for China, if, oh, it's, if it's Hua. Yeah. Hua means China. Ren would be people. And there's actually, interestingly enough, I think it's either in Shanghai or Beijing, there was a European architect who designed a building. To, to look like the character people. Yeah. Uh, they've had all kinds of very interesting experiments. But it does look like the character Hua, which means China. Okay. Uh, the okay, nation. It basically means the nation, if, yeah. it's, if it's what I'm thinking. Okay, of. well, what about the, the spaceship part of it? I guess that's the, that's the well, real question. That's well, that's interesting. Uh, is it just the surrealist? I mean, they're moving through a surreal landscape the whole time, it is, right? It and is. maybe that's just amping up that kind of... I think I think that's a good reading of it. Um, we first see the UFO utilized in as we move from the story of Han Sanping, one of the, 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 the men who comes to look for his wife, and bridge it into the story of Shen Hong, who is the, um, the woman looking for her husband. And as... And as the, it transitions, we notice uh, the man follow, seeing this, this, this bright, shiny disc going yeah. through the sky, and then we cut to, to the woman following the same image, and then her story begins. So yeah. it's a transitional figure. At the end, there's this unexplicable image of a tightrope walker between two buildings. That doesn't make sense. So yeah. sometimes they seem to be transitional images. Here it's interesting because we're not transitioning between scenes yet. It's kind yeah. of happening fairly close to the end of her segment in the middle of the film. But I think I think you're right. I think it's just, it's highlighting the sense of the the surreal nature of what's happening in China today. This because it's it's a very it is a very kind of almost 
apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic, dystopian. Pre-apocalyptic. Oh, pre-apocalyptic, right? yes, I guess, because of... we're waiting for things to happen. <laughs> That's right. But yeah, it's just a, ver a very unstable world where things just are falling apart. Things fall apart. And it's the, the humans who have, I think that this is one of the reasons why I wanted to see this as part of our Anthropocene series is that, you know, that if you go and you look at the, you know, what had to be done to, to accomplish this three gorgeous dam. I mean, it is, it is on such a scale that breaks all kinds of records in terms of, you know, the amount of earth displaced, you know, the, the amount of water by, I mean, it's, you know, that you can kind of go through and catalog this, that this, you know, more than, than most human projects really gets at this idea of humans as a planetary force, right? right. That, right. And, and it's not one individual, it's us collectively, right? right? That kind of, and like you're saying, there's, there's a certain ambiguity to this. This is incredibly environmentally destructive at the same right. time that, you know, China is, is answering other criticisms about its dependence on fossil fuels, right? So, right. of course, hydroelectricity is so much better than fossil fuels in terms of, you know, greenhouse gas emissions and, and things right. like that. It's complicated. You know, it just it returns to this kind of complication constantly. You, you mentioned some of the, the formal uh, aspects as uh, elements of this film. And one that stands out to me is that it seems like the camera is always in motion. Um, it's always panning. It's always moving through this space. And I wonder if this is getting at this unsettled kind of nature, right? That they, they, none of the characters are planted, none of them are rooted, but they're all kind of moving through these, these spaces and looking for something to anchor them. I think that's right. Some of his earlier films seem to use a much more stable or fixed camera position. Mm -hmm. Whereas here, I think, and I'm, I'm trying to sift through my memory, but it seems that this is a much more mobile camera than we've, we've seen in some of his earlier works. Yeah. And there's, I mean, all of his films deal with this issue of the dilemmas of modern society and, some, and particularly the issues of displacement. So that's always there. Here, however, it's taken, I think, to even more extreme forms because in none of the other movies do we see everything being torn down. Right. And people literally being pulled. And this is what happened in cities like this, areas close to where the, the flooding was to, to begin, where the water was to basically cover up air. Uh, what, what had been cities, they just pulled the people out and moved them eight kilometers to a new, basically a new city. And Chinese people generally are very tied to the soil. And there's a sense of native place. And yeah. losing your native place is horribly traumatic. Yeah. I, I don't, can't say unprecedented, but certain, because there have been flooding, the Yellow River flooded historically, but... But this is a kind of a man-made thing, not yeah. a natural disaster. Well, I, I think one of these records that it, it said is the displacement of people, you know, 1.5 million, no, something, something like, like that. that. I mean, it's numbers that <laughs> kind of boggle the imagination if I they start do. mapping it on what that would mean here in Utah, right? Exactly. Now, his, his filmmaking, he has run afoul of the authorities uh, before, but not this time. He actually received... Uh, support from the state to make this and there's a very documentary element i mean he's not creating there these is. sets he is there filming is. on location as it's happening yeah. and he's what's referred to as a sixth generation director and a lot of these directors began their careers making movies on digital media location shooting non-professional actors uh, natural lighting ambient sound mm -hmm. uh, synchronized sound all that very you know they had low budgets and they were often making movies with without government approval basically yeah. they were clandestine and here he as you say first he had the film was approved by the by the film board mm -hmm. which has the right to censor films and they approve proposals and his proposal got approved and then he's funded by the shanghai film studio so there's kind of an institutional stamp on this and the question is well with 
off these kind of negative critiques. I mean, how could he get approval? And the, people seem to suggest that he got approval because it's a hard, you can't hide what's happening with the Three Gorges yeah. Dam, with the, the water that's building up, the displacement of people. All these things are facts. Yeah. The government's not hiding them. But what hasn't been discussed fully is the implications on the environment, the implications in the human sphere. And that's something that the film really, I think, explores. Yeah. And I don't know that in looking at a proposal you would have seen that necessarily. No, there, well, there's an interesting way in which background and foreground are confused right. in this film, right? right? And so, yeah, if you're going to describe the plot, you can do it relatively straightforwardly and, and simply. Right. And in a lot of ways, the most significant thing that's happening in the film is what's happening in the background constantly. Exactly. And and even these, you know, we mentioned the UFOs and things like that. They kind of function that way. They're, you, uh-huh. You're not looking at those you know, parts of the screen, and then suddenly, oh, wait a second, am I supposed to be looking at that? Right. It has that kind of, you know, uh, that shifting, you know, almost like rack focus, you know, in, and in how you and shift maybe, your attention. And maybe that's what Jia Zhangke is doing. Maybe he's cluing us in as viewers, because we're used to the foreground. Yeah. Films are about the people uh, that we see closer to the camera, and in the back, we don't, we don't pay as much attention to that. Maybe what he's doing in all these moments is saying, hey, pay attention. That's right. What's happening in the back? In the film lecture, I, I show, showed one very small clip, and it's a clip shot of the Han Sun being the husband with his wife. They're standing next to a large hole that's been knocked in the building and then shooting through it, and it's probably about screen projection or yeah. something that's been brought in. We see a landscape of a larger city with um, buildings being torn down in the foreground, and that's very static. And we see them having an interaction, a short few exchanges, a few words, and then suddenly a building is detonated and just collapses in the background. And then they turn around and they both look at it. I mean, that's really what Zhao Zhangke wants us to look at. I think you're right. He's trying to re-educate us to say we need to look in the background and not just in the foreground. And, of course, the background would not have been described that much in detail. That's right. Or would have looked very innocuous. Well, and, and you think about what this means philosophically, too, that, you know, what happens when we stop looking at humans as something that's separate and distinct from the places they inhabit, but intimately connected, you know, with them. So downplaying right. the centrality of the human and and refocusing exactly. our attention on, on what's going on around us and the way that we're connected right. or not connected, you know, to right. these places. Right. So. Because all those events, all the the magic realism or the surreal aspects are all background, whether it's the tightrope walk or the UFO or that building taking off. That's right. Well, Steve, thank you so much for being with us here on My Pleasure from the booth today. Uh, We've been here with uh, Steve Reap, and we've been talking about the film Still Life. And now to talk about our final film, I'm here with Mariah Oscarson, the Assistant Director of International Cinema. We're going to be talking about Fathers and Sons. Thanks for being here, Mariah, as always. Happy to be here. This is a, a little bit of an uncomfortable documentary, probably, for a lot of people to watch, uh, in that it's focusing on this extremist Muslim family. I think one of the things that you come out of it, uh, at least as a Western audience, you come out of it just thinking, how on earth did they film this footage? It's meant to be uncomfortable. It shows how it's it's an extremely intimate look into a jihadist family. And how did it happen? The filmmaker, uh, Talal Derki, risked his life for two and a half years. There's 330-some years of of filming. And um, he spent uh, a lot of time with them, became friends with, with the family under uh, the cover 
that um, he he was as well a uh, very religious, which he describes himself as not. So but he's from this area in Syria. Do I understand that right? So he is a Syrian, but he lives in uh, Germany now, and he, he he really wanted to show the damage that was made to children when they are brought up at home and at school with this ideology of killing and um, of war and violence. And he did it very, uh, I mean, that, that was very powerful for me. Mm-hmm. I, I, there's a scene where, um, there, so do you, you don't see much blood, actually. You hear a lot of stories in the film. But there is the sacrifice of a lamb. And there you see, you see blood. And uh, the filmmaker explained that that was very symbolic for him to film that because he, wa- he wanted to show that as much as this innocent lamb was sacrificed, the father, as loving as he was, was sacrificing his, his sons to to that ideology and violence and war. And I say it was because the father is is dead. He he was killed in 2018 mm. by a bomb. And we saw as well at the end of the documentary that the oldest son, Osama, was killed as well. So I mean it's just a it's a very sobering look at what violence and war does. And uh, it's advocating education without guns, religion yeah. without guns, and not teaching religion in, in the schools where ideology can can be strongly pushed right. on, on uh, innocent children and, and they can become brain, brainwashed. Well, I think one of the, the real long-term consequences of this prolonged uh, conflict in Syria is precisely that you have a whole generation of, of youth, in particular young men, who have never been educated, right? That they've never been in schools, their lives have been so disrupted and uh, they've been living in such extremities that the, the consequences of that are going to be felt for a very long time. For generations, yes. Yeah. What, what about the gender dynamic that you see going on in this film? Well, let's talk about this, because um, if the filmmaker had filmed women, it would have really blown up his cover. You don't do this. Right. Um, so the women... Yeah, and, the, and the film is of fathers and sons, right? It, it is, it, of it fathers is kind and of son. marking that there's a patriarchal kind of Definitely. structure that it, that it focuses on. But it doesn't tell the whole story then, right? <laughs> Absolutely. It does not tell the story of, of the women. And it's definitely a masculine power that's linked to war. That's it's, And it's showing how it's passed on. So there's two scenes, if I remember well. One where the boys are throwing stones at a little girl. And I do believe, if I remember well, that they're telling her to go put a scarf on. Okay, I'm sorry if I... But I the stone one yeah. thing is, is for real. And then another scene where Abu Osama, the father is um, uh, hurt by a, 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 a bomb, an explosion, and he's, uh, he lost a limb and he's coming home. And um, you can hear his wife, I think he has several, but you can hear women wailing. And um, he answers with, with violence to this, this mark of love. And he says something like, he, he tells her to, excuse this, I'm quoting, shut up or I will destroy the whole house above her head. So, yeah, those are the women in the film. There's two other documentaries that we have um, 
that we're lo that we've been looking at lately for for the program, and one is the cave, and and the other one is for Sama, and those two documentaries are intimate looks of women's lives in the war. Right. So one of them is a is a surgeon, and that's the story of like her life in the hospital, saving lives, and the other one uh, lives in the hospital as well because her husband is a is a doctor there, and she's documenting the war. So next semester we're we're really hoping to to bring. Another look, another intimate look, but this time the story of, of women during war. It really makes you, you wonder what, how these kinds of patriarchal structures and this, you know, this, the view of women that is perpetuated by some of these uh, more extreme you know, versions of, of this ideology, how it itself is responsible for, for the violence, right? That if, you know, is, would this kind of, of violence be, be possible in more egalitarian societies? I wonder if that's one of the things that uh, Derki is inviting us to consider a little bit. Not so much in his film, but uh, definitely. In an interview that I listened of this Swedish um, woman who worked in embassies, and I apologize for the fuzziness there. I don't remember if she was an ambassador somewhere, but she was in diplomacy. And that's the point. She worked in diplomacy. And she was saying that there's not many women there. And in her work abroad, she is completely convinced that if we had more women working in diplomacy and government, there will be less war and less violence. And when she saw it on the ground, mm. that women's influence in society is, is of first importance. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it's an interesting kind of implication, you know, perhaps of this uh, coming out of this film. I mean, what we see in our fathers and sons to support this idea as well is that the children are using, and the boys, we don't see the girls, the children are using violence as a response to life because of how they've been brought up. Right. And we do not see the mother's influence on them. So that yeah. that would be an, an interesting uh, documentary. Right. That, probably cannot be done in, in the jihadist um, societies. Right. It's, it's, it's difficult circumstances when there's such a, a radical division between men and, and women. You don't cross those lines easily. I think it, it is interesting to think about uh, terrorism and uh, extremism in a broader context. And it's really helpful for me to see, and this is the power of film, right, to be able to put us in this position that I could never go to, um, and to, to develop a different view and, and kind of charity and empathy. I mean, I don't think that the film is advocating the ideology in any stretch uh, at of all. the imagination, no. mm -mm. but I, it humanizes the people. And you begin to, you see the poverty in which they live in and the circumstances, and you begin to understand how these movements depend on on a kind of frustration with the system, right? And with that, that they're born out of poverty, that they don't come from nowhere. And, you know, the harder you, you try to work to stamp it out, the more persistent it is because you just perpetuate these very conditions, right? And this documentary shows this very well. Like, under your eyes, you see Osama is 12 when it starts and he's 14 at the end. And you see a little boy become a little soldier and it's happening right in front of your eyes Re really chilling right very chilling okay well thank you 
Thank you for joining us today on From the Booth. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU, which is supported by the BYU College of Humanities. The hosts and guests of this podcast are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they don't necessarily represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. As always, we thank our sound engineer, Jojo Hagstrom Pratt, for both being our guest today and as well for helping us to sound better than we really do. Uh, we thank, too, the staff of the BYU Humanities Resource Center and the Humanities College web team for their help and support. Until next week, we hope to see you at International Cinema in 250 The Kimball Tower. Thanks, Marinor. See you next time.